I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. I feel like this is going to be kind of a weighty one today, guys. Just kind of an emotionally weighty episode, at least for me. Maybe not for you, but we'll see. And not going to be weighty because I'm going to talk about sex with clients, topic of my last episode. I'm not really going to go there much, though what I am going to talk about is very much inspired by the conversation I shared with you last time with Dr. Andrea Salenza about sexual boundary violations. That's not quite the direction I'm taking this today. I want to talk about tolerating paradoxes, and I want to talk about love, but I am going to take a winding road to get there, as is my right as a podcast host. Before I do get to where I'm ultimately going today, I find myself thinking about how back in 2019 when I concocted this podcast, I didn't expect it to become so personal. I started this podcast out of irritation. I talked about this way back in my first episode. I was irritated with the field, with the direction the field was going in many respects, still am, and I wanted to just rebut things and tell people they were wrong about stuff. That's not very vulnerable. But as this project gently bubbled on my back burner, as you and I and we all held on for dear life to that fulcrum along which our lives would pivot and then never be the same again, that psychedelic gauntlet of 2020, this project turned into something different. Those of you who have undertaken the implementation of significant creative endeavors know this experience of transformation between idea and execution well. The artist Linda Berry says, a drawing cannot match the picture you have in your mind because the picture you have in your mind is not a drawing. And so it is with any idea we can dream up. An idea is an idea. It's not a product. And an idea for a podcast is an idea for a podcast. And this podcast itself turns out to be, in this case, rather different looking from the image that first presented itself in my mind. I didn't expect to be getting so deep here. And by that, I don't mean cognitively deep. I mean, I didn't expect to be getting so deep into the heart stuff, the feelings and the meaning of what it means to have this be our life's work and to occupy this very strange and particular role among the vast matrix of human beings. I arrived here unexpectedly, perhaps because to sit with this blank page where I write these episodes in these stolen moments, when I leave the pots and pans piled in the sink, to come here means that as I sit and reflect on the big themes that my guests bring in and that I want to talk about here, I necessarily end up encountering a different level of connection to the everything about this work than I might have otherwise. And I'm really just in the deep feels lately. And because this is my podcast and I get to do whatever I want, you're coming with me. A couple of months ago in episode 2.4, What Happens When Our Clients Encounter Our Humanity, when I was describing my childcare disruption and the chaos it was throwing my professional life into at that moment in time, I said that maybe by the time that episode aired, I would have arrived at my new normal and tied that chapter of my personal and professional life up nice and neat with a bow. Spoiler alert, I had not. That episode aired almost two months ago, and as of this writing, I feel I've just barely over the past couple of weeks arrived at my new normal, and 
no bows have been tied neatly or otherwise. But I'm sitting here in my office on a Wednesday. My daughter is safely ensconced at her preschool where she is established in her daily routine now and I am at work on my designated non-client workday. No appointments ahead of me. No urgent tasks. Only the ever-present background hum of semi-urgent ones that buzz and whir around me no matter what I'm trying to do. But that's the ever-present background, so I can shut that out as best I can, as one does. And as I sit here on my couch with the unfilled hours of my workday stretching out in front of me in a way I would have utterly taken for granted a few years ago, it's dawned on me how I've just stepped into this time where I now have some kind of space to just feel and think about this work way more than I have any time in the past three and a half years. I wanted that, planned for it by setting aside this client-free workday, and yet I'm still surprised that it's here and I'm here. It's not that I suddenly have enough time or anything approaching that for everything I need and want to do at all, but I do seem to have something resembling some kind of breathing room. In contrast to these last three and a half years of being squeezed from every angle and trying to still show up and create enough spaciousness and strength to really be here for my clients and do good therapy, which I care so much about doing. And the really crazy thing is, I did. Certainly not in every session and not with every client that's made their way to my virtual door in that time period. I have at times dropped balls and had days where I barely made it dragging myself through my sessions from exhaustion, but I have somehow also done most of the best work of my career over this past three and a half years. I have done work I am incredibly proud of as a therapist in this pressure cooker where I had so little space to breathe. And now here I am in this place where it seems I don't quite have to do that anymore, where I can breathe a little again. And then, of course, with the space to breathe comes what? We're therapists. We know this. With the breathing come the fucking feelings. And here, dear listeners, if you're still with me on this winding inner journey that I've dragged you all along with me on, here is where we are going to meet back up with something from my interview with Dr. Salenza. I didn't forget. Because among the many things that I've been feeling about, and this certainly being the thing among them that is the most relevant to you all, is so much about what she calls the multiple irreducible levels of reality in the therapeutic relationship. I'm going to briefly quote from Dr. Salenza's book, Sexual Boundary Violations, here, where she says, The therapist and patient are involved in the intersubjective creation of a new reality an ordinary relationship, and the mode of relating framed by the therapeutic endeavor. The therapist strives to maintain an awareness of these simultaneous yet irreducible levels of reality as neither mutually exclusive nor more or less real. She goes on to say, the inherent difficulty sustaining the irreducible tension among the multiple levels of the therapist-patient dyad should be more openly acknowledged. So, marching orders, Dr. Salenza. I'm openly acknowledging it. 
I want to say a little more about what I think Dr. Salenza means by this. We did talk about it towards the end of my last episode, so I'll be referencing that, and I want to expand on it a little bit. So she identifies three layers there of the therapeutic relationship, the first being the intersubjective creation of a new reality. This layer, which is unique to every therapist-client dyad, is where the dance of transference and countertransference takes place where the multiple selves of the therapist and the multiple selves of the client evoke each other and arrive into an incredibly complex relational matrix. The times when we can manage to really track all this in real time in a session, particularly in an intense session, particularly in our more intense client relationships, we can notice the different parts of ourselves and the different parts of our clients arising and retreating in relation to one another as if choreographed by something beyond us. I can sit with a client and we can start our session with a couple of pleasantries. And then in one 50-minute time period, the number of people we can be to one another and the number of kinds of relationships we can enact is vast. All of a sudden, my client is my mother. No, she's my daughter. No, she's me. No, we're giggling children together. No, we're strangers flirting in a bar. No, we're a couple fighting. No, we're teacher and student. No, we're student and teacher. No, we're just a couple of old friends. No, we're comrades in arms. For those of you who have a background in political activism, as I do. All of that and so much more is possible. All of that is clinically useful. All of that is transference. And all of that is real. And no one of those dyads within a dyad is more real than another, even though many of them contradict each other. And we're still just talking about the first layer, the innermost layer, perhaps, of the therapeutic relationship. The second layer that Dr. Salenza identifies is that of the ordinary relationship, two people equals, the layer of the relationship at which the normal rules of human relating for, I suppose, whatever culture you happen to be a part of still apply. An ordinary relationship where we build familiarity with one another over time and abide in some way still by the norm of reciprocity and exist as two people who know each other living in a society together. And the third layer is the mode of relating framed by the therapeutic endeavor. And the therapeutic endeavor, of course, as I defined it a few episodes ago, is to substantively mitigate the client's suffering. And this layer by itself has its own paradox in it that Dr. Salenza identified for us so deftly last episode, which is that the therapist-client mode of relating has two separate axes of power in it that are independent of one another. On the first axis, the therapist has more power due to the disproportionate amount of information we have about our clients. Even if you are way on the self disclosy side of the therapist spectrum, which I think I tend to be, and even if you use a lot of immediacy, which I sometimes do, I of course have a much more intimate, explicit, detailed understanding of the landscape of my client's psyches than they do of mine. And making that axis of power where the therapist is more powerful, as safe as possible for the client, is, of course, what all the constraints and ethical codes around our boundaries and how we are allowed to relate to our clients are designed to do. But there's the second axis of power, where the client has more power because 
they are the recipient not only of most of the attention, the entire relationship is structured around meeting their needs. And that paradox between those two axes of power bumps up against all the multiplicity we identified in the first layer, the innermost intersubjective layer of the therapeutic relationship. They pull at each other because some of them are contradictory. If I'm experiencing my client as my mother in our intersubjective field on the first layer, that creates friction with the axis of power on the third layer, the mode of relating framed by the therapeutic endeavor where I am the more powerful party in the relationship. And again, they're both real. It is not my job to pick one or the other, but rather to whatever degree possible to be aware of that tension, tolerate it, and use it in the service of the client's needs. Are you lost yet? I'm not, but I think some of you might be. And I think that itself is great evidence of how inherently difficult it is, as Dr. Salenza says, to sustain the tension between all these levels of the therapeutic dyad. And given how inherently difficult it is to understand this tension, to cultivate conscious awareness of this tension, let alone tolerate and sustain it, I think it's pretty remarkable that most of the time we aren't going in and making catastrophic errors. Good job, everyone. But let's unpack the difficulty a little in the service of openly acknowledging it in a more meaningful way. Again, the reason that, as Dr. Salenza puts it, the irreducible tension among the multiple levels of the therapist-patient dyad is so difficult to tolerate is that in addition to the profound emotional and relational potency of many of those levels, in relationship to one another, we experience them as contradictory, paradoxical. To be human, is to have been given the gift of the capacity to hold paradoxes. And yet to hold them successfully without being rent in two by their polarities or collapsing into one side or the other requires so much of us. When we are confronted with a paradox, the urge is to deny it entirely, to back away from it, or to level it by choosing one of the two or more conflicting truths and claiming it while denying the others. Dr. Salenza made reference to this at the end of the last episode when she said that some of the therapists she has talked to who have had sex with clients will say that the man-woman relationship was real and the therapist-patient relationship was transference when really they're both transference and they're both real. So this urge to collapse the paradox is where we have this potential to get into real trouble. And sexual boundary violations are one of those kinds of trouble, and not an uncommon one, as we discussed last episode. But I think that an even more common way of trying to collapse the paradox in order to avoid having to tolerate the tension of these multiple levels of the therapeutic relationship is to collapse it from the other side by refusing to have real intimacy with our clients. I want to illustrate this with a tweet that has been going around the past week or so. I'm calling it a tweet. Elon Musk can go fuck himself. Mwah. And the tweet says, Millennials love therapy because an authority figure taking a superficial, aloof interest in them while hiding their resentful contempt is the defining feature of being raised by boomers. Now, I understand this is a joke. And it's a joke about boomers as well as being a joke about therapists. But the part about having that experience of therapy is not the joke. It's the foundation of truth on which the joke pivots. 
Many people are out there having this experience of therapy where they are aware of the therapist's engagement with them as superficial and distant. I don't think that's just transference. I think that's also real. There's a reason this tweet went viral, and it did. I saw it all over the place. It feels highly relatable to a large number of people. And to be clear, I'm not shaming anyone out there for doing superficial and distant therapy, even though I strongly believe in not doing that. I have done that kind of therapy, much to my disappointment in myself. I hope that I'm not doing that now habitually, but in 10 years as a therapist, yeah, I've done it. And I bring this in now because I think that's another way of trying to collapse the paradox. It's an attempt to resolve the same problem that therapists who have sex with their clients are sometimes trying to resolve. Except that when we collapse the paradox from this side, instead of enacting an intrusive, exploitive intimacy, we are collapsing the paradox by avoiding real intimacy with our clients. It's a way of implicitly saying that the therapist-client part is real, but the man-woman part or the person-person part is just transference, when again, they're all transference and they're all real. I think that one of the big contributing factors to this is that most of us, especially younger-ish clinicians who were not trained specifically in a psychodynamic or relational psychotherapy model, which is most therapists trained in at least the past decade or so in this age of so-called evidence-based practice and so-called brain-based therapies, most of us aren't trained on how to cultivate intimacy well with our clients. And so when we approach intimacy, it feels taboo, like we're supposed to retreat from it instead of move towards it. And as a defense against that, many therapists chronically keep their clients at a distance and then can get bowled over and not have any idea how to tolerate or leverage it when the intimacy comes anyway at times. It's true, of course, that keeping a client at an excessive emotional distance is less directly harmful and traumatizing and exploitive than having sex with a client. It's not an ethical violation to do kind of crappy to mediocre therapy, thank God. But I have to say that when people come to me to talk about their painful experiences with therapists that they've had, I hear a lot more people speaking with pain about therapists that were too distant than I hear about sexual exploitation by therapists. And to be clear, I have heard people talk about being sexually exploited by therapists. It's out there, as we've been discussing. But it's much less common than the other, which is also harmful and painful for clients. So what I'm getting at is that whatever angle we choose to collapse the paradox from, it's problematic. Our responsibility is to tolerate and sustain the tension of the paradox. And it truly is so hard, especially when you are doing it day after day, year after year, client after client after client. My awareness of this challenge has grown as my experience in this field has also grown over the years. I think I have become more adept at occupying a balanced place in the middle of all the intersecting paradoxes. So in that sense, it has become easier. But as I become more adept at holding the paradox, I also become more present, more vulnerable. I allow my clients to see me more. I allow myself to experience more love with them. And in that way, it does not become less hard. It becomes more beautiful, more excruciating, more everything, more, more, more. 
I was so glad that when we spoke, Dr. Salenza used the word love to describe the therapeutic relationship, because even though how she framed it was that there's more acceptance around that idea nowadays compared to how it used to be, and that may well be true in psychoanalytic circles or other therapist circles that are not mine, but I'm not sure that overall there is that much acceptance of the idea of love between therapist and client. It still feels very taboo to me. And I've seen people do all sorts of verbal gymnastics to try and define the love that arises in the therapeutic dyad as something else. Even outside the it's just transference frame, people will make noise about how it's a professional relationship that's non-reciprocal, which is bullshit, by the way. The therapeutic dyad is reciprocal, even though it doesn't take place on an even playing field. But honestly, fuck off with that it's professional, so it's not love crap. Our profession is to get deeply involved with other human beings' hearts and minds. So again, yes, it's professional. And yes, it's transference. And yes, it's love. And yes, it's real. When I think of the category, people I have loved the most in this lifetime, across this 41 years, A not tiny number of the people in that category are people who have been my clients. And here we are getting back to my feelings. (laughs) Remember early on in the episode, I said I was having some feelings about some things about all this. And here's the heart of them here. Because when we open ourselves to love, we also open ourselves inevitably to grief. And I think in the container of the therapeutic relationship, We are opening ourselves to a fairly unique kind of grief that we don't really talk about. An example, you know when you have a client where you get to know them and you realize that if you had met in a different context, you would have been great friends and you feel a sense of loss about it? And you feel the sense of loss even though you may never have met that person and gotten to know them if they didn't wash up in your office as your client. And it's the getting to know them as a client that shows you that you could have had a wonderful friendship with them. And you feel the sense of loss even alongside the fact that you are really happy to have them as your client and to have the opportunity to know them in that way. There's the paradox again, right? And the grief that lives there is this unusual grief that dances just right there at the center of that paradox. I didn't feel this as strongly as an early career clinician, I think in part because it hadn't accumulated yet. I did not yet understand what it would mean to mourn the loss of all those friendships. The grief that would come from having so many of the most intimate and magical and meaningful relationships of my life take place inside this container, and not to be able to take them out of that container with me except inside myself. And don't lose sight of the paradox because it's the container itself and the very fact that I can't take those relationships with me outside of it, that makes that particular magic and intimacy and meaning possible. And I am not laying it on thick here when I say that to have that role in these clients' lives, to have myself be an instrument of their healing, is the honor and privilege of a lifetime. I am awestruck at what some of the therapy I have done with some of my clients has made possible for them and deeply humbled and astonished that I somehow get to be the one to facilitate that. Because as I've said here before, I am not an especially good person. I know a lot of people who I think are 
better people than me. And yet I get to do good in this profound way. And it has taught me something existentially meaningful about what it means to do good in the world, even when the goodness inside of us exists alongside some very deep-seated and persistent shortcomings. And all that that I've just said, that is just a sliver of what this work means to me and what it has done for me. And still, I also have to grieve the losses inherent in it. I have to grieve the fact that some of the people I have loved most deeply in this world will never be sitting around my Passover table in the spring, arguing and drinking wine with the other people I love. I have to grieve that we'll never sit on the porch of a summer evening looking at the stars and talking about everything and anything. I have to grieve that if we fall out of touch, which is going to happen eventually in almost every case, I can't just text them out of the blue to see how they're doing and say, I miss you. Even though I know and accept and even welcome that it's the very fact that none of that can happen that creates the conditions for me to be able to have these transcendent relationships with these clients where I get to be an instrument of their healing, I still have to grieve it. I want to give voice to the sense of taboo I feel in even talking about this. The part of me that senses I'm not supposed to be saying anything about this kind of grief at all, this inherent loss that is part and parcel of the therapeutic role. Because so much of our professional demeanor seems to be predicated on us acting like we are fine, you know, just add self-care, so that our clients or potential clients won't feel the need to caretake us. And we unpacked the bullshit of needing to present ourselves as fine a few episodes ago. But also, it is kind of fine. It's fine to experience grief. It's fine to devote your life to an endeavor that both nourishes your heart and breaks it. In fact, for me, it's not only fine, it's the only game in town, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I believe that if we are strong enough to hold what's inherently hard about this work, our clients and potential clients, which is all of us too, are strong enough to hear about it in the public sphere, and that we are all being served well by our honesty about this, because it is that honesty that makes us more resilient to the paradoxes and more resistant to the urge to collapse them from one side or the other. This weekend, I was walking with a friend of mine at a music festival, first anything I've done like that since the start of the pandemic. We made our way under the canopy of sparkling colored lights, both of us carrying sleeping children on our backs, talking about the risks and terrors of intimacy and of loving someone open-heartedly in the face of loss. It's like how I have to let myself love my clients, I said, even though I don't get to keep them. She said, we don't get to keep anybody. Oh, you guys. The heartache of this human life. So today I had my hours of reverie to swim around in these deep seas of grief and awe. Hours that feel like an unimaginable luxury in the life of a working mother in 2023 America. And tomorrow, tomorrow I have my clients. I will wake up before the alarm goes off the way I do these days 
the morning light leaking in around the edges of the blackout curtains that I can never seem to get flush with the windowsill. I'll feed the dogs, bundle my kid into the car, and drop her off at school, drive to the office, and walk into this strange, adjacent, overlapping universe of therapy, which is also real life. Sit down on my couch, turn on my iPad screen, and pick up the work again. I appreciate you being here with me on A Therapist Can't Say That. Since I started this podcast, I have aggressively not paid attention to how many downloads I get and all of that stuff because I feel like it kind of fucks with my head and distracts me from just putting this out there. But I did just open an email yesterday from my podcast host that was like, you've reached 10,000 total downloads. So now I know, and this is a tiny podcast on a very niche subject, and that milestone is a big deal to me. So thank you for that. I really appreciate knowing that I'm not just shouting into the void. It really helps me reach more people if you rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you haven't done those things, please do. And of course, please also don't forget to share the show with the therapists you know who would like to join us in talking about the things that it feels like a therapist can't say. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. I love hearing your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course your a therapist can't say that moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to Reva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time. That's a wrap.